Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcasts every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. This week, best-selling novelist and acclaimed podcast host Elizabeth Day talks to Satnam Sangera about her new novel Magpie. Join them as they talk about writing thrillers and a novel that tells a gripping and unsettling story about power, motherhood and envy. Hello, I'm Satnam Sangera. I'm a journalist and author originally from the Midlands and I'm talking to my friend Elizabeth Day today, who is also an author and a journalist, but she's originally from Northern Ireland, aren't you, Liz? I am. Well, I was born in Epsom, but we moved to the North of Ireland when I was four. But I do have a Midlands connection because I went to school there, went to school in Malvern from the age of 13. Oh, yeah. I always forget that. Mm. <laughs> um, anyway, I should say who you are. Everyone knows who you are. You are the author of four novels and the Sunday Times bestselling memoir, How to Fail. Your debut was Scissors, Paper, Stone, which famously won a Betty Trask Award. And Home Fires was Observer Book of the Year. Your third book, Paradise City, was named one of the best novels of 2015 in the Evening Standard. And The Party, which was your last novel, was a Richard and Judy book club pick. You're also an award-winning journalist and you present BBC Radio 4's Open Book and the Sky Arts Book Club. And you're also the creator and host of the chart-topping podcast, How to Fail. So I feel very self-conscious because uh, you're a pro at this, aren't you? Well, I think I'm an amateur who's learnt through experience and you were one of my first ever guests. And so I'm so grateful to you for taking the punt on How to Fail when no one really knew what it was about. But it's really nice having the tables turned. It's very nice hearing you introduce me. It's quite surreal for me, yeah. I mean, I think I was very relaxed in that podcast because I thought it would fail, ironically. (laughs) And then it became a massive thing. You have so little faith in me. (laughs) Huge faith now, huge faith, now that you're successful. Uh... Anyway, we're here to talk about (laughs) your novel, Magpie, which I actually only just finished reading this morning. It's so good. Oh, thank you. You know, when people hype things, I'm so contrary. I'm inclined to believe it's not true, but it's really addictive unsettling, didn't know what was going to happen until the last few pages, I think. And totally original. I mean, it's a thriller based in the world of um, fertility, I guess. Is that too reductive? No, that's absolutely what it is. And also, can I just say thank you so much for that compliment? Because listeners might not know that a recurring trope of our friendship is that I'm the emotional gusher and you're the one who's quite cynical and sparse in your compliments. So for you to say that <laughs> carries so much meaning. <laughs> yeah, just don't ever mention it. I mean, I said it. I'm kind of stabbing my leg with a fork <laughs> when I say it. Well, thank you. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is a book that uses the architecture of thriller writing without it being a kind of police procedural about a grizzled detective with a complicated personal life. And I love reading those, but I find them very complicated to write. So I use an architecture of a book that I hope is compulsive to read and I hope is slightly sinister, slightly claustrophobic, and you don't really know what's happening as a reader. And then there's a big twist in the middle. So that's why I'm talking in such vague terms. But the themes that I explore are fertility, motherhood, 
the pain and battle that can go into becoming a parent, what that does to you as a human being, and mental illness and the human condition. So just those tiny superficial topics (laughs) I thought I'd put into what is hopefully an accessible and readable format and that's magpie yeah I mean that's a it's a really rare skill to be able to deal with those really heavy subjects in such an accessible way I guess your last book the party last novel that was a literary thriller but this feels like more of a deliberate genre thriller am I right or wrong you're right in the sense that I knew that I wanted to write a book with a twist because I find that enormously satisfying as a reader. And I pride myself on being able to spot most twists, either in books or on screen. And so I knew that I wanted it to be a really, really good one. And it was from there that the rest of the book came about. And so it was a deliberate choice to have that kind of reading experience. And the other thing that I think draws together a lot of my novels is that I really enjoy as a writer and also as a reader, the experience of a kind of unreliable narration and never quite understanding whether what you're being told is the full truth. So Magpie opens from the perspective of Marissa, who is a woman in her late 20s who's had, as many of us have, the dispiriting online dating experience. And she finally meets this man called Jake, who's a bit older than her, who seems to tick every single box, who seems decent and straightforward and kind. And it moves quite quickly. And they move in together quite quickly into this house where most of the action takes place. And they decide to start trying for a family together. And at this point, Jake's business isn't going that well. So they take in a lodger called Kate And she seems to act in quite a kind of intimate and possessive way around the house in a way that really prompts Marissa to be quite suspicious of her and of what she's doing in their lives. And it's about what happens after that. But yeah, God, it feels so real. Does it? I mean, it feels, uh, it stressed (laughs) stressed me out. I had to stop reading it several several days in a row. I could only read it in small small doses. Well, that's great to hear. Compelling at the same time as being claustrophobic. That'll be my new blurb. Thank you. <laughs> so um, what's the reaction been? I guess because you are kind of, this is a book that could appeal to so many people, people who are really interested in the issues of fertility, people who just want a, a really amazing thriller. Who do you think's reading it? I mean, it's a bestseller, obviously. Everyone's reading it. But do you, get, do you get a sense of who's really enjoying it? That's a great question. The reception has been amazing from my perspective. I feel incredibly grateful for it. Before the book was published, I was lucky enough to get some advance blurbs from authors that I hugely respect and admire. Uh, Lisa Tadeo was one of the first to read it and gave me an amazing quote. And having that in my back pocket made me feel much less anxious than I normally do in the run-up to publication, because I thought, you know, even if I get a one-star review on Amazon comparing me unfavorably to a packet of cat food, at least Lisa Tadeo and Kate Moss and Marion Keys think that I've done a good job. And so that was really, really good to have. But I think, I mean, every author says this, it can appeal to everyone. I definitely wrote it with other women who had gone through fertility issues in mind, because as one of those women myself, I had never seen our experience accurately reflected in fiction in the way that I would have liked to read when I was going through unsuccessful IVF, for instance. And I really wanted to speak to that demographic because I think we're so often ignored. 
And so one of the great gifts seeing this book out there in the world is that I've been getting messages from precisely those kind of people who say how refreshing it is and how they feel really seen in the pages. But beyond that, I've been really pleasantly surprised how many men seem to have enjoyed it. Again, because there's this massive cliche that it's only really women who read books by other women. And it's been very nice to hear from some men folk as well. So I think it hopefully has broad appeal. Yeah, I was thinking about that, actually, because not only is there that issue that so many you know, women writers aren't read by men, or men tend to avoid them. I don't know why. But also, fertility as a subject is, is always, you know, quite often anyway, pitched as a female subject. And the really interesting about the book is that, is that the men in the book talk about fertility. And I was reading it, I realised that I've never really heard men talk about fertility and how it affects them. I'm so glad you said that, because the book is very, it's pretty feminist in outlook. And in terms of narrative voice, it's weighted in favour of the female characters. And there's a reason for that. In the male characters, one of them has to be left deliberately quite ambiguous. But it's almost like I wanted to rewrite my own history. And without going too much into personal detail, when I first started going through fertility treatment, I didn't feel supported in my relationship. And so it was important for me to have men who did talk about it, who did engage. And also because I'm so aware now that men go through it too. If you are in a heteronormative relationship and you are going through fertility issues and you are trying to become parents, men experience a different kind of grief, which I think is sometimes very difficult to process or express because the physical stuff isn't happening to you frequently. I sort of wanted to look at that as well. And I'm glad to hear from you that you think I've done a a goodish job. Another really well-drawn character in the book is the mother-in-law. A famous trope in Bollywood movies too, the difficult Um, (laughs) mother-in-law. Have you got experience with them? Did you enjoy writing it? I've got a sense that you did. I loved writing the character of Annabelle. Um, I have an absolutely gorgeous mother-in-law and she is a complete delight and almost the polar opposite to Annabelle. Annabelle is towering and fierce and cold and the epitome of a certain kind of upper middle class woman who would never acknowledge that she was snobby, but she's the kind of woman who would categorise people as like PLU, people like us, Mm. (laughs) and then the rest of the world. And I'm super fascinated by that particular segment of the British class system partly because I've been able to observe them. So when I mentioned earlier that I went to school in Malvern, I got a scholarship to a private school and I, my family were living in Northern Ireland. So I became a, a boarder, a full-time boarder. But because I've always spoken with quite an English accent, I was immediately accepted. But actually, I didn't really know any of the rules of that cadre of society. So I was always an observer on it of it, but I was always also invited into country houses and posh parties because I sounded like I fitted in. And Annabelle is someone who is ferociously protective of her son and sets herself up almost deliberately in competition with any woman who comes into his life. And I wanted to look at that kind of aspect of motherhood where you are very possessive, but also the kind of person who, although... They might be really well off and live in a nice country house in Gloucestershire, is quite cheap in certain ways. So would keep chocolates that 
an unliked guest had brought way past their sell-by date and then served them to someone else. And the chocolate would always be slightly coated with white because they'd aged too much. So I, I did have a lot of fun with that. And I realise, having now written five novels, that one of my obsessions is the British class system because it's one of those codes of conduct that no one speaks about and no one knows if they're on the right side of it unless they've been brought up knowing the rules of it. And I, and as a novelist, that's a fascinating interplay. Annabelle's husband is a doctor and, and your father is a surgeon. And I know it's so basic to read people's biographies into their novels. I can't believe I'm asking you this. But was it based on your father? No, it's not based on my father at all. Although Chris is a lovely, lovely man. He's very kind and very gentle. But I did ask my father for specific medical references and names of drugs. And I did ask him how a retired GP in this particular situation might act. And he's an incredibly useful fund of information, my father. So uh, he was very helpful from a research perspective and he really enjoys doing it. So I give him a kind of, I give him a situation. I'm like, this is what I need this character to do. And this is how I need them to behave. What would be their medical diagnosis and he's really helpful on that front so it's not based on him but he was hugely informative in the shaping of that character yeah i couldn't believe how basic i was being while reading it because i i did slightly read it as a commentary on your life and yeah i know that's the single most annoying thing people can do to me as a writer i don't mind it that much to be honest i know i completely understand and respect why other novelists don't really like it particularly female novelists i think are often it's often assumed that we don't have any imagination, so we must just be gazing at our own navels. <laughs> but because Magpie is really founded in my personal experience of some of the issues that I explore, I don't mind talking about it from that perspective. I'm very clear that my characters bear no relation to who I am or who my family is or who my husband is, but the themes are absolutely ones that I have dealt with and so i'm okay with that well thanks for giving me but i noticed a hummus makes a couple of appearances and i know you like hummus Uh, but (laughs) do do people in your life ever complain or have they complained about stuff you've written about hummus definitely not i mean (laughs) yeah but especially about hummus that's a really good question have they ever complained no with my first novel I remember handing an early manuscript before it was published to my mother and she read it. And when I saw her next, her face was drained of colour. <laughs> and she said, gosh, you've got very dark thoughts, haven't you? Are you OK? Are you happy? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'm totally fine. I just get it all out in fiction. And both she and my sister pointed out that I had unwittingly lifted a character from our real lives and plonked her in the centre of the plot. And she was only a very, a sort of very, very minor character who only made one appearance in one chapter. But it was a friend of my grandmother's that I'd sort of, I hadn't really realised I'd done it. So I changed that. (laughs) But that's the only time that I can think of. Well, it's useful to have a family like mine who don't really read your work. Yeah. (laughs) What's the secret of writing the same story from different perspectives? I guess, uh, I mean, you've you've done that a couple of times. I think you did it in Home Fires, didn't you? There are two women. Yes. Memory serves. Oh, you're one of the only people who's read that book. It's a great book. How do you do it? Because I can't do it. I know that's a very basic question. That's so interesting, can't you? How do you do it? Is it, I mean, do you write a chart of like the things they've got to refer to and then make them slightly different? How does it work? I don't because I don't love planning. I mean, I do in life. I'm not a spontaneous person. Oh, God, yeah, you love that. (laughs) I love planning. 
But I don't like planning when it comes to writing fiction because I find it restrictive and I feel hemmed in by it. It's like doing a revision. I don't like it. I'd much rather write myself into a character and then let the character inform the plot. So other than like noting down things like eye colour or what t-shirt someone was wearing, I think I've got quite a visual memory and I have so much fun doing it because when you write the same incident from different perspectives, you can show purely from how differently people perceive it so much about their character and about what's actually happening. And so I'm very, very interested as a writer in the unsaid and the different slants that various narrators will put on the same event. I just, I, I found it really enjoyable. So I don't know what that says about me. Oh, I was going to ask you about that because, yeah, you find it interesting. I thought you say you find it enjoyable because to read it, like I said, I found it claustrophobic, mm. but also compelling. Um, I did wonder how it affected your mood because I find if I'm writing difficult stuff, I almost need to stop writing at two o'clock. Otherwise, it infects my day. Mm. What was it like writing it? Was it a pleasurable thing, stressful, therapeutic? It was all of the above, really. So I had written 15,000 words of Magpie before the pandemic happened. And when I reread those words at the beginning of lockdown, when everyone, I think, was feeling a bit unhinged, I thought that they were the worst words ever written. I was like, well, there's just no, I mean, it's just awful. (laughs) And then I went through a period of not writing because I normally like to write in cafes. And obviously that pleasure was denied me during lockdown. And when I returned to the manuscript, I had had a personal loss. So I found out I was pregnant at the beginning of lockdown. We had a miscarriage at eight weeks. It's my third miscarriage. It was devastating. But in the aftermath of that, I really wanted to write again. And I really wanted to return to Magpie because it does deal with some of these themes. And I therefore found the routine of writing Magpie and the liberation it afforded me to explore things that I was feeling I found it incredibly cathartic and meaningful it felt like I was erecting something meaningful in the space left by this loss I look back on it now and it was such a curious time that first national lockdown and so devastating for so many people and I feel really blessed that I had an empty diary and had those two hours every evening from sort of five to seven where I could really get into the flow of the plot. And I've never really had that before. So I found it, I think, sort of rhythmically pleasurable to write, if that doesn't sound too porn hubby. But I think there's something about the kind of flow of the routine was really helpful, even though I was writing about difficult things. And when I wrote about difficult things, Yes, there's always a moment where there might be some emotional processing, but it always feels really good because I feel that I'm making something out of nothing. So that's quite a kind of patchworky answer to your question. Mm, that's a very good answer. There's a, another plot line, which I'm nervous about not giving anything away, but it involves severe mental illness. Were you nervous about writing about that? I think you've done it very sensitively. You know, as someone who's got severe mental illness in my family, I always notice when people do it badly. And you haven't. Did you do a load of research? Were you nervous about it? First of all, thank you so much for saying that because it means so much for me to hear that, knowing you as I do. It's the last compliment you're getting, man. I know. Well, it's fine. It will tide me over for the next five years. 
but because I know a little about your situation that uh, thank you that really really that's the best thing you could say yes I was really fearful of getting it wrong or of doing a disservice to the experience of people who live with all sorts of conditions and I also didn't want to make it into a shorthand for monstrous behavior because I think that's part of the issue, the kind of othering of people who live with mental health conditions. Because for me, writing about mental health and the flip side mental illness is writing about the human condition. I just don't see a distinction. I see characters who might act in ways that superficially might appear difficult to understand. And it's my job as a novelist to explain what damage they're carrying or what might motivate them from their personal history. It's my job to make you understand that and to remove that sort of othering that is so endemic in society. So I didn't really realise when I started writing that I was going to be writing about mental illness. And then it became apparent that that was a factor of one of the characters. And yes, then I did research I plundered my dad for information. (laughs) And also, I just think talking to people like you, listening, reading, I think that just really helps as well. And as a journalist, you know, my day job is as a journalist and I get to meet extraordinary people. And as a podcaster, I get to talk to people who have been through really difficult things. And so I think I learn a lot from that as well. How do you balance the journalism and the books? I mean, this is something I think about a lot because I guess I do a version of what you do, although I don't write as much fiction as you. I always think that journalism is is in the business of answering questions and literature is in the business of asking them and not necessarily answering them. I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you feel feel they complement each other? How do they sit alongside each other in your life? I like that distinction very much. That sounds like a quote that will go into a dictionary of quotations. Index Sangira Satnam. (laughs) (laughs) You can have it. Put it into your dictionary, man. I have felt that they are complementary. I mean, I should preface this by saying I didn't have a choice. You know, I, I, I needed to pay the rent. And so I needed to get a job that would bring in a regular salary. And I wanted ideally to do a job that involved the thing that I most love in the world, other than my husband, my friends, and my cat, and that's writing. So that's how I got into journalism. And I had to fit in writing books around that because writing books did not make me money for a very, very, very long time. And that's just a fact of life for so many of us. And I think that they can be incredibly complementary. So Home Fires, my second novel, which you were kind enough to mention, was very much based on interviews I had done with families and parents who had lost loved ones and children during the Afghanistan and Iraqi wars through lack of equipment, serving soldiers through lack of equipment. And I that was something that was directly informed by my journalism. But I think on a kind of broader scale, asking questions, listening to answers, communicating something clearly to a reader who's got a minimal amount of time on a Sunday morning, whose attention needs to be engaged, all of that is so helpful when it comes to writing any book, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, because you realise that writing is as much a craft as it is an art. And it's a bit like, building a dry stone wall, like you need to have the stones and you need to kind of keep building it and you need to not be fearful of the blank page. And 
having journalistic deadlines on such a regular basis is extraordinarily good training for that. And in terms of how I balance my time, I haven't quite nailed it yet (laughs) because I think lockdown taught me that I would love to get into that flow again when I'm writing a novel or a book. I would love to have enough space in my diary to do that. And I probably need to make some changes to ensure that that happens. But at the moment, I'm in the happy position where I have a weekly column and basically I give a day of every week over to that. And then it's a question of just seeing where other things fit in. I mean, often my diary is shaped by the availability of podcast guests because it's like when they can do the recording and then I'll fit my other stuff around that. Yeah, I like what you said about deadlines. I always think that journalists who become writers, book writers, book authors, they don't really get writer's block because it's been instilled to them that that they cannot miss a deadline. The clue's in the name, deadline, you're going to die if you're going to miss it. You know what I mean? That's the way I see deadlines. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you refer to all the things you do, podcasts, journalism, nonfiction, novels, radio and TV presenting. Is there one thing you particularly enjoy or do you just enjoy them equally? Do you hate them one thing sometimes? I mean, how does that change? Writing novels is my big love. (laughs) Like I cannot imagine a time in my life when I won't. That's the thing that I've always wanted to do. And that's the thing that brings me I wouldn't say, I mean, yes, it brings me joy, but it's, it's that lucky thing where I feel I'm doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing. When I'm writing a novel, I feel the most untangled I can ever feel on a personal level. Oh God, I can't, I can't even relate. I can't relate to that on any level. I'm at my most uncomfortable when writing fiction. It's so hard. <laughs> That's so interesting. But you're, well, you're an amazing writer of both fiction and nonfiction. How do you feel when you're writing nonfiction? tortured a bit better yeah a bit better journalism's the easiest Mm. but i mean Mm. in your ideal world would you give up everything else and just write novels no that's a really really good question because in the past i think i would have said that but actually i've discovered that i love broadcasting i love the podcast and i'm really enjoying doing radio 4 and open book and i think i'm someone who needs as a novelist, I feel like I need to engage with the world around me. I need the outside stimulation. I need other things because I'm the sort of anti-Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan Franzen famously disables his internet when he goes in to write his 600-page tomes. And I, I think distraction can sometimes be absolutely necessary. Firstly, to avoid you going mad. And secondly, to ensure that you're still a player in the world around you. And sometimes I reward myself with a little internet break when something's going wrong. You know, I like to have a little lurk on TikTok and it just kind of refreshes my refreshes my creative palette. Oh my God, you're on TikTok now as well. Well, I don't create any content on TikTok. I just look at other people's content because I find it hilarious and innovative, but I just don't know how people have enough time to do TikToks. They're like, it's a proper editing process. <laughs> Do you think this, uh, you know, all the things you do, is it a reflection of your personality? I mean, are you an introvert who likes being an extrovert occasionally? Are you, an, are you an extrovert who likes to be an, I mean, how does it work? I think I'm a high-functioning introvert. So I think I'm an introvert who's learnt how to be in a world of extroversion. And occasionally that brings me great joy. But I do find it, I have to be aware that I find I need to replenish my energy levels with time in solitude and you know this sat down like that's been one of the big juggles of my adult life is really balancing my need for hermitude (laughs) with 
my love for my friends and a lot of... And stealing other people's friends. Shush, as if. I don't <laughs> steal your friends. We just become a bigger group of friends. That's what <laughs> happens. And I think, in answer to your question more deeply, I think I have a lot of drive and that comes from a fundamental lack of self-worth. <laughs> Actually, I was going to get into that, yes. Your lack of self-worth. Yeah. I mean, basically, you're a massive workaholic. I don't know any writer <laughs> who works as hard as you. And I haven't quite worked out what drives you. Is it your, you know, your very demanding but nice father? Is it something else? What is it? I made it, I was sort of joking about the lack of self-worth, but absolutely not. Like it is that I feel like I've got something to prove. And I think that that comes from never having quite felt that I fitted in as a child because we moved to Northern Ireland when I was four. I never fitted in there. I was always a bit of an outsider. I didn't have a great experience at secondary school before I went to Malvern, this is. And so it was that thing of, almost wanting to prove people who doubted me or who underestimated me or who were mean to me. It was like wanting to prove them wrong. And I actually think that that drives a lot of journalists and a lot of stand-up comedians. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm grateful for it because it's given me ambition and energy to do things. But I also think, and this kind of goes back to what I was writing about in Magpie, because I don't have children yet and because I have always wanted to be a mother, I feel that I need to leave something else permanent behind, not to get too morbid, but there's a, there's a sense that I want to contribute in a lasting way to the world. <laughs> so, but as in like, yeah, so I, I want to have a book because a book lasts forever. Oh, you have. And, and so a lot of it is displacement. A lot of it is displacement, I think, from the sadness that I feel not being a mother. But at the same time, I'm so grateful that not being a mother yet has given me all of this time and all of this drive to do the other stuff. What do you think your 14-year-old self would make of everything you've done? Be honest. No, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I just realised that I was, I was just stressed and sort of nervous in the run-up to Magpie publication. And I really had to stop to take a breath and give myself a good talking to because I know 14-year-old me would be so thrilled. Like, she would be so excited to be living the life that I am. And I feel that... I'm excited for you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I'm excited for myself as well. And I need to remind <laughs> myself, like, four-year-old me would have been just delighted. I mean, my ambitions at the age of seven were to live in London, to be a journalist, eventually to write books, to have a cat. And like all of those things I'm doing, and I'm doing other things as well. So I'm, so I actually feel proud of myself in that respect. There, you've got, you've got me to say that thing. Should be proud, but I mean, <laughs> I feel like you've slightly overperformed. You know what I mean? You've done a bit too much. I mean, I, I could probably do a bit less. I, I definitely do. Definitely do a bit less. Things. Please make us, the rest of us feel a bit better about ourselves. To take it a bit, a few years on, what would the writer who wrote Scissors Paper Stone? think of your career now? I guess I'm trying to ask you, what have you learned about writing since? I remember being asked, I think when I sort of published my second novel by a friend, would you rather win the Booker Prize or be an Amazon bestseller? And he is quite a bit older than me. And I said, oh, I'd rather win the Booker Prize. And he was like, what? That's incorrect. You'd rather be an Amazon bestseller because a lot of people read your work and you can make a living from it. 
And I think that's changed in my eyes. That I think most young novelists setting out, if they're really honest with themselves, have this ambition to be taken seriously and to be deemed worthy of book a prize them. And actually, the older I've got, the more I realise that the most important thing for me is connecting with as many people as I can. And so it's about readers reading my book. Like, that's what I care about. And I now care far less about accolades because I've sort of seen inside how the sausage is made. I've now been a judge for the Women's Prize. And I loved that experience, but I understand how subjective judging can be. Mm. <laughs> and it's all random. So I think... Yeah, it's all random, isn't it? I think that I would be scissors, paper, stone era me. I'd be quite surprised, pleasantly surprised by the fact that Magpie's been a Sunday Times bestseller, but it wasn't necessarily the way that I planned it. That's, does that make sense? Is that a good enough answer? Yeah, it's a pretty good answer. Do you think uh, the journey is everything? Definitely. Yes, I do. I do think that. And I think that launching How to Fail and writing a lot about failure and asking a lot of questions about failure has has really shaped my worldview in that respect. Because I now understand that some of the best things in my life have happened as a result of things not going to the plan that I had set myself or the plan that I hoped for. So the fact that I don't have children or the fact that various relationships ended has led me to the point that I'm at now where I'm married to an amazing man who I met through Hinge. Do they sponsor you or something? You feel like you have to mention them. They've never sponsored (laughs) me. Full disclosure, they've never sponsored me, but I'm just so grateful to them. (laughs) And I've come into contact with so many incredible people from being able to live in LA for three months or from chatting to other women about infertility. Like I've met amazing people who are who are kind of pioneers in their own field and I'm so grateful for all of that so I do think the journey is everything I actually think connection is everything so so connecting with people and with ideas and with life along the way that's what brings meaning to my existence I agree with you you gave the right answer the journey is everything (laughs) but if you had to pick some things Mm -hmm. you have achieved and say that they matter to you which ones matter to you the most Okay, I'm going to say something. So, actually quite embarrassing. But it's the first thing that I think of, which is my degree. I'm so... That's so, so pathetic, but sweet. I know, I know. (laughs) But can I tell you why? So, I did not expect great things of myself at all academically or when I went to university. And to find that I passionately loved my degree subject and then was actually like okay at it was nothing short of miraculous to me. I still pinch myself and I still can't believe that I got that opportunity and that I did well. And I still have, like my... Well, I know you're too humble to say what you got, but you got a double first from Cambridge University. I did, I did. Pretty impressive. Didn't you get a double first? No, I got a single first. Oh, well... (laughs) I'm a loser. We can't, we have to stop this conversation (laughs) because it's so egregious. But I still have, you know when people have recurring nightmares? Yeah. My bad dreams are all about sitting my finals Mm. and doing really badly. And so it meant something huge to my psyche. It was the first time that I think I believed in myself and that I kind of confounded other people's expectations of me. So that was really important to me. And then every single book I've published, I'm really proud of the fact that they're published. 
and the podcast, How to Fail. Those are, those are my key professional achievements. And then personally, I'm really proud that I battled on through the wilderness of online dating and found someone <laughs> who I can't quite believe exists, but he does. So <laughs> he does. I've seen him. He does exist. You have. You can. You can bear independent witness to that. <laughs> He's got a face. <laughs> so what's next? What else is happening in your incredibly overactive professional life? Well, I've almost finished the UK series of Married at First Sight. So <laughs> I've been watching a lot of reality <laughs> television. What's next is I'm attempting to write a nonfiction book on friendship, of which you, Satnam, are an integral part. So I'm interviewing five of my closest friends who each have something I think very meaningful to say about friendship. And that will provide the kind of scaffolding of the book. And then I'm doing sort of thematic chapters about what friendship means, how we approach it. Because I think during the pandemic, we've all undergone a kind of reassessment of the importance of friendship in our lives. And so I kind of want to examine that because I don't feel like it gets enough airplay. And I'll continue with the podcast. And I am in the process of, again, attempting to adapt how to fail my sort of memoir, sort of manifesto into a fictionalized TV series. So I've been commissioned to write a pilot. Oh. And so I'm, I'm sort of trying to write a script, which is really, really hard. Can I just say? <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were adapting Magpie because I can really see it as a TV series. Oh, well, I've got an exciting meeting about that tomorrow. So I, I don't want to adapt it, though. Like, I never want to adapt any of my novels. I'm really excited to see what other people might do with it. It's just such a different skill set, isn't it? I mean, you know this from the boy with the top knot. It's so hard for anything in TV to get made. You don't want to be the reason why it doesn't get made. Yeah, such a good point. Yes, I think it'd be amazing on TV. And it's a great book. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for being such a delight as ever to talk to. And you have been atypically complimentary. (laughs) And I appreciate that that means for the next decade of our friendship that you can just gently troll me face to face when we next meet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. No more compliments. But no, I really enjoyed talking to you. And hopefully we can meet in real life in London and then one day at the actual Birmingham Literary Festival. I loved doing that festival with you whenever it was two years ago. Let's get back there as soon as possible. Yeah, that was amazing. I realise you must do that every night, but that sticks out for me as a really fun thing. It was a really special one. Yeah, we'll do it again. She says, sounding like the Rolling Stones. Yes, that was really special, that gig in Denver. (laughs) But anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you, Satna. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BeHamLitFest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham LitFest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.